Hello, and welcome to Teacher Tales, a podcast from the spirit of teaching. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I invite you to join me and my guests as we get curious, explore, discover, and learn more about what is really at the heart of teaching. In each episode, we will hear the story of a teacher, what called them to teach, what are their greatest joys and challenges in teaching, what inspires them, and what are their hopes, dreams, and vision for the education of children. We will learn more about the greatest lessons they have taught and also the greatest lessons they have learned. No checklists, no standards, no reports, no paperwork, and no data. Just stories from their hearts to our hearts on a journey to celebrate what really matters in the true spirit of teaching. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Teacher Tales. I'm so glad you're here for this episode because it's a very special one. Um, No pun intended, but Brandon is my guest, and he's going to tell you what he teaches, where he teaches, and why he became a teacher. So hi, Brandon. Hi, everyone. Um, Like she said, my name is Brandon Thornton. Uh, I'm from Bloomington, Illinois, a little small town central central of Illinois, um, where Illinois State University is, and I teach special education. I've been teaching at Bloomington High School for 10 years, although this is only my second year teaching special ed. I just finished my second year of teaching special ed. So I was a gen ed math teacher for my first eight years and then moved into special ed the last two years thinking they would give me special ed math and ended up co-teaching and teaching special ed English. So <laughs> I'll be teaching English again next year. So that's a little glimpse into how special ed works. You've got to be prepared to teach everyone and everything. So I've known for a long time, though, that I was going to be a teacher. My mom had a home daycare when I was little. And then by the time I made it to high school, that home daycare turned into a full-on preschool center. Um, And actually, she just retired back in 2016. So I've always been around kids. I would get home and have to help out at the home daycare or the center. And so I kind of knew that I was going to either inherit the family business (laughs) or become a teacher. So it's kind of cemented it, though, that I wanted to teach high school. Mm -hmm. Very good at giving me very Moments that made me feel empowered and made me feel seen, um, even though I only had one teacher who looked like me at the high school, um, I still felt like I was given opportunities to feel in a position of, I don't know, empowerment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And bless your mom for doing that, because it's so critical that early, you know, access to education and uh, and schooling and positive role model adults that care and that sort of thing. So thank her for that. That's bless her very much. And also for you, because she's influenced you and now you're influencing kids. So what drew you a little bit towards special ed? Like you said, you did gen ed math, but what made you think, you know, like I want to, I really want to just specialize and work with these special needs kids, the ESE kids. Sure. So um, I've, since my year one, have always been a co-teacher. So in in Illinois, for the most part, co-teaching looks the same at the high school level. You have a gen ed teacher with a special ed teacher, and you're both teaching at the same time. Um, 
And if it's done correctly, like our school does, the students really don't know which one is the gen ed specialist and which one is the special ed. And so that was how every year of COTA, including the last few years. And so watching my special ed teacher at work, I always felt like they're better than me. You know what I mean? Like how I went to school to be a math teacher and here I have this person who says it's their first time teaching algebra and they're reaching kids in a way that I just couldn't. And um, I believe it the, the way I, I attribute this to the way we teach pre-service teachers in Illinois at the secondary level, you graduate from your department. So I graduated from the Department of Mathematics, which was in the College of Arts and Sciences, where my K through eight colleagues graduated from the College of Education. So that means they took way more coursework in students with disabilities and child psychology and all the things you would expect and teach you to do. Whereas me, Calc 1, Calc 2, Calc 3, abstract algebra, differential equations, and maybe junior and senior year, one or two methods courses on how to teach math. And so I was under the illusion that I was going to be teaching AP and honors and all these things that I was learning about. And then I get into the classroom and it was very remedial and things that I hadn't done since I was in Algebra 1. And so I think that's the shared experience for a lot of secondary educators is we're taught to be experts in our field. And which is important, but sometimes we don't have the skills we need um, to reach all kids. And so I identified that early on and went back to get my master's in special ed to certify me to teach special ed. Um, and then never left because now I'm working on my doctorate in special ed. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Well, you bring up such a wonderful point that I've always talked about, but I've never really talked about it on a podcast with a guest. And that is the teacher training that goes on at the university level to get that certification, that degree, it is very specialized and very high um, content, you know, high level content, but there is so much missing on that teacher training. And we have given a little bit of a lip service to it, so to speak, of we're gonna send you into, you know, teacher train with a lead teacher in a real high school or real elementary school, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And it depends on that lead teacher in the school as to whether or not they're going to let go of the control of the classroom and let you actually take the reins or, and the motivation of why they're doing it. I've had a lot of teachers tell me, oh, I just took a student teacher because then I get a free course at the university so I can take it and recertify, which is not on everyone, but, um, but still it's, we really have a lot of work to do no matter what subject area it is in that teacher training and preparing teachers for the reality of being a teacher, not just delivering the content, but teaching children, teaching mm -hmm. human beings. So, um, so that is such a great point. And we're gonna talk about that. Um, can you maybe say a little bit about as a gen ed teacher, that difference when you're dealing with special ed kids and maybe some advice or tips or a new perspective with new lenses for regular classroom teachers as to why and how, because I told you in Florida a couple of years ago, they said, 
every teacher now has to have 20 hours of, you know, for the recertification and ESE courses. And there was a lot of outcry about it. Like, why do I have to do that? Uh, you know, they're, they're in a special ed class and I don't see them, but that's not true, like you said. So can you address that a little bit? Absolutely, that's actually a really good segue because what you just said, they're in a special ed class, but I don't see them. And honestly, I had that misunderstanding as a gen ed teacher. Um, I knew I had students in my class with IEPs, but I still felt like they weren't my responsibility. I felt like their case manager was the end all be all that whatever I did wrong, if I did anything wrong, the case manager would call me on it. Um, but honestly, their role has shifted so much that they're doing so much more than making sure that you read the test to them. They don't have time to check in on everything in their caseload because they're making sure they're meeting all of their social emotional needs, they're communicating with parents to schedule their IEP meetings, they're communicating with their deans if they're into a discipline issue because that's an entire separate process. And especially for disability is emotional behavior disorder. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining the IEP. And so I, as a gen ed teacher, thought special ed was, it was just a hallway. And sometimes kids from that hallway come into my classroom and I try to make learning approachable for them. But at the end of the day, their case manager, they have it. And it was wrong. <laughs> it was very wrong. Um, and I realized that dynamic was off in my co-taught classes where I was with a special ed teacher and I got to see how they interacted with kids in their caseload. And I realized they were their life coach. It was more than just, what are your grades? You know, it was, it was teaching them how to self-advocate, how to speak up for themselves, how to communicate, how to self-regulate emotions if they're having a, a panic attack. And all these things were happening in front of me where it finally clicked. But in my gen ed classroom where it was just me, I didn't have one, the time. So I do sympathize with gen ed teachers since I was just one. You really don't have time to think on the fly. Like I have 30 kids. Okay, which eight have IEPs? What is a disability? What are their accommodations? What are their goals? You really don't have time because you weren't prepared for it. You don't know how to do it. And I've slowly learned in Kota how to do it on the spot. Um, so I, I, I would totally co-sign on every genetic teacher having some coursework um, in special because it is a different, you approach the curriculum in a very different way. You approach pacing, you approach accommodations versus modifications. If you don't know the difference right off the top of your head, that already illustrates a need for some coursework because they are very different. Um, and this idea that the special ed teacher has to be the one giving interventions. I held that true for so many years. And then I realized they're being trained that the gen ed teacher is the one doing the interventionist because we're the content experts. So if a kid is struggling and solving one set of equations, they're anticipating that we are gonna recognize that struggle because it's documented well in the IEP and we're gonna intervene. Or I was under the impression that, oh, the special ed teacher is gonna have some time to do that with them. But they won't at secondary because they're pushed in, they're in, the kids are in inclusion courses. Whereas maybe in middle school, they meet with their case manager X amount of minutes. So that could happen. Um, but so just a lot of misunderstandings now that I've crossed over and now that I'm teaching a new content 
And now that I'm relying on English teachers to back me up, it's kind of like, and math teachers and science teachers, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. And it's that communication back and forth. And I don't know, we were talking a little bit about, you know, that requirement of what teachers need to be prepared for, not just the content being experts in every little minutia detail of the content, but we're dealing with human beings. And mm-hmm. I don't care if it's your regular classroom student who's not, doesn't have an IEP or a 504, or they're in a pullout class, or whether it's an English language learner or a gifted kids, gifted kid, because they all fall under that same umbrella. Um, they're kids. Everybody's different. Every, and, and even to raise the awareness, like I'm hearing you say that you, through your experience, raised your awareness of what it was like and what was expected and what's the experience. And we have to have those opportunities to do that and reflect and then grow as teachers to better meet the needs of the students. And maybe some PD, a little more meaningful PD would be, you know, having some experiences with other teachers or, um, you know, going into another classroom and observing and having a different experience rather than sitting in a meeting with a PowerPoint with somebody who's reading the slides and it means nothing to us. And I don't know, that's just, I'm thinking off the top of my head. And, but if, I think that if teachers really see what it's like for a student to struggle that has an IEP or a 504, if they truly understand what does that mean and that they do have a responsibility to help that student. It's not that special ed teacher or even the guidance counselor. Everybody's juggling a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could tap into our hearts and a little, be a little more empathic and not ostracize or uh, exclude those students or leave them behind. Because we're humans and if we don't understand something, we're afraid of something. We don't fully know something, especially as a teacher, I've seen teachers armor up and get very difficult to, um, to deal with, but it's, they're coming from a place of fear and not understanding Mm -hmm. and feeling this obligation. Well, I did go to college and I am a content expert and I should be able to solve this problem. I should be able to handle this. And no, what you said is like a microcosm of life. They are almost like a life coach. And Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we don't go there either because we know that we're not really there yet either. We're never going to be perfect and we're not. We haven't mastered (laughs) life either. Absolutely. (laughs) Or we may see a little bit of ourselves in that student and be like, oh no. (laughs) Like (laughs) experience has told me that you need to let that go. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to read to you um Jessica, your coworker, um, Jessica Nicholas recommended you and she said Brandon has a larger than life personality, and he is one of the special people who teaches with his whole heart. He works hard to connect with the students in and out of the classroom, from teaching speech team to anime club to founding our school's new young alumni association to pursuing a doctorate in his free time. Brandon is also open to his experiences with racism in our community and is well known for his commitment to loving his students with his whole heart. So that is such a lovely um, 
you know, recommendation that she has for you. So what do you, what do you think she means by a larger than life personality? I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Everything I do, I feel like everyone can do. I think being at the high school, it's an interesting position because oftentimes high school teachers get in to teach because they like the content, right? They're really good at it in high school. Um, and so they felt like, yeah, I could, I could teach that, I guess. Um, and so sometimes like the stereotype you see in movies of the high school classroom being very dry and <laughs> the teacher at the front the whole time and not a lot of kids are talking is the reality for some classrooms. And that's just not how my classrooms go. But I think it's because I've had to teach freshmen for a decade and you have to be, you have to be animated for freshmen. And so <laughs> maybe that's what she means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't see myself that way, but I'm, I, <laughs> Well, connecting with the kids, <laughs> you can't be one dimensional. You do have you to tap into their interests, tap into their personalities, tap into their different, their, you know, how they are different and how they're the same um, and show that you see them. We talked a little bit about that before mm-hmm. the podcast too. Like, mm-hmm. how do you see students and how do you let them know that you see them? And I know you talked about how you have started some clubs and mm-hmm. how it works at your school. Um, and so you want to tell us a little bit more about that and give you know, other teachers ideas of maybe what they can do at their school and the reason behind it, why both you and Jessica are doing these things. Yeah, sure. So this is kind of like a self-care type of thing for me, at least. Um, I found teaching to be very stressful in my earlier years. And it wasn't that I was having bad experiences in the classroom. I, my cup just wasn't getting filled teaching math um, all day because math, at, at least in Illinois, is like public enemy number one. It's very vocal about their former experiences with it they don't like the content and therefore they don't like you. And so there were some hard days where I was fighting that, which was hard to make relationships with. And so, uh, and that's something I always wanted because I had good relationships with my teachers in high school. And so I wasn't really getting that in all my classes when I was teaching. And so I ended up getting involved in a a lot of clubs. Kids knew that I liked anime. And so the last anime club sponsor was leaving and so that was the first club that I took over and it was what I looked forward to every Friday because it was a chance to just see kids and then you realize that these kids are also in your classroom some of these kids might even hate math um, but when they realize that they like you and so that kind of helped me separate um, myself from my content and not to take it personal and say I hate this class Um, because they don't they hate the way the class makes them feel. It has nothing to do with you. It's a prior experience or something that you might accidentally be reminding them of um, based on their past trauma. So that was, and I thought Anime Club was enough for me, but I don't have the ability to say no to things. And so I'm now in charge of tons of clubs. Um, Probably the biggest thing is coaching speech and debate which I was voluntold to do. <laughs> the last coach uh, had, to, had to leave. And so the drama director said, you should do it. And I said, no, I've never done speech or debate. 
I'm a math teacher. At the time I was a math teacher. She said, you'll be fine. You have a good smile. And (laughs) I said, yes, not knowing what I was doing or anything, but we've gone to nationals the last five years and state the last seven years. So, Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, my advice to teachers is just, I know that it seems contrary to add more to your plate if you're burning out. But for me, especially at a high school level, it was a chance to feel fulfillment if I wasn't getting it from the classroom. And now I'm getting it from both places. Um, that wasn't true during this last year, right? Every, if we just forget about last year because <laughs> of the pandemic, you, you, like me, were probably struggling to fill your cup. But luckily I had my activities that I could hold on to. I knew, okay, we're still doing speech and debate. It's through Zoom, but the kids are still having their cup met. Um, Anime Club is still meeting through Zoom. Um, Social Justice, Social Justice Club, we're still working on activities. My uh, volunteer club is still getting out in the community, even though we're we're wearing masks, we're still getting out and and doing work. And so if you're at the point in your career where you feel like every day doesn't feel like the best thing, then you might want to look into sponsoring a club. And even if you're not passionate about it, seeing the kids passion is enough to like make you want to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it, clubs really, I mean, and you can always learn something. I mean, every teacher I've been interviewing for the podcast, it's like, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning new things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's great advice that when you're getting burned out or a little bit frustrated, find an outlet. A lot of people find it in personal things at home, like they may jog or do yoga or, and that's all great too, but um, learning something new is exciting and discovering that you're good at something. Like, obviously you must have some speech and debate, you know, talent inside of you and you're passing it on to the kids. And, um, and, and then something that we feel passionate about. Um, I've always taken the word passion and say, rearrange the letters and I say it's I pass on. So what are you passing on to kids? So you're (laughs) you're passing on a love of something or seeing the potential in themselves, even though they may not like math. And I feel that that's the greatest power that a superpower that a teacher has is what they're going to pass on. And it's a choice every day. It could be something traumatizing or it could be something inspiring. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like you do a lot of inspiring um, to students. I know one thing I saw was a beacons of light facilitator. What? So that's inspiring. So you're doing some inspiring too. What is is that all about? Sure. So we um, in the McLean County is a county where I teach in, um, saw a lot of student-led protests surrounding the George Floyd uh, murder. And I noticed that a lot of the students that were organizing were from the four other high schools in our area, none from mine. And so I felt like, why? (laughs) What's happening? We have the most diverse high school. Um, We 40, no, I think we're at 51%. 51% of us are free reduced lunch. We have a district that speaks 20 plus languages. Um, About half of our population is, is students of color. And so I felt really confused as to why none of us were organizing or out um, speaking at these events. And so a couple of us got together, Dr. Nicholas included, um, and started just 
saying like, why, like, what do you think is going on? And so we coined the term beacons of light and we were going to help students become kind of like a beacon that was going to guide other students to use their voice, um, self-advocate. If you see an issue, here's how you research that issue. Here are people you can communicate to. Here's how you write a letter to the editor. These are some of the activities that we were going to be working on um, with the students. And it's been going really well. Um, We didn't want valedictorians, right? We don't want the students who are in National Honor Society. We don't want the students who already have these skills because they're learning in their AP Honors classes. So we specifically reached out to kids in Coltac classrooms, kids who hardly ever get a chance to exercise their voice. And we've been working on solely empowering them to be the leaders because oftentimes the leaders, the student leaders are the same kids, right? It's the student council president. It's maybe um, the football captain. It's the people that the administrators know and they're always one invited to speak at engagements. And so we wanted to tap into those kids who don't feel like they have a voice. Um, And we were realizing that a lot of our kids don't feel like they have a voice because none of them go to these rallies. They don't see themselves, um, I don't know, for some reason, they don't see themselves as an important voice at the table. Mm -hmm. So that's what Beacons of Light is. Well, if, if other people, adults especially, are not seeing them, they're not going to see themselves, you know. Um, and I talked to recently a, a, a college professor at Brown University who, um, who is a hip-hop artist also in his, in his spare time. And he said um, that he kind of coined the term authorizing. So he said that he feels that his purpose is to authorize other people to see the light within and to shine it on the world. And that, again, I, that's the spirit of teaching to me, um, is to see that and to um, see potential and see the gifts and encourage and authorize them to speak up, use their voice, be present, um, be seen, be heard. And so a lot of like ESE kids, they're left out. They're excluded a lot of times and they, they feel like they're marginalized or left out and they don't use their voices. So what you said earlier about those coaches teaching those kids about how do you advocate for yourself? How do you speak up? How do you, you know, communicate with other people so that they hear you? And, and, and even with, um, ELL kids, I've worked a lot, you know, in languages and with ELLs, English language learners, and that's the same thing too. And I was telling you about my daughter in fourth grade, who does Awareness Wednesday and uses literature and then cards to which they're on Teacher Pay Teachers for free. Um, And I can put a link in the in the in the description there for any teacher that wants to use them, you're doing English language arts. even though it's elementary, it can be used for high school. And she asks questions like, who in this story has been left out? Who in this story doesn't have a voice? And fourth graders that are 10-year-olds still see it. They know it. They feel it. They can, and they will say to her, like, that person's like me. And I feel like that that's been for me, like I haven't been able to speak up about something or people don't see me or they may wear a hijab and they're like, people look at me funny and people make fun of me for wearing that or they may make fun of me for whatever 
difference that they see. It's a very diverse school. Um, and I think those conversations need to be um, at the forefront more and more and more. And teachers using that sort of approach to bring the kids in and get them to see themselves in the world and, and, to, and to know that we see them, we hear them, and they are valued. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like the work that you're doing with the Beacon of Light. And so as far as um, your experience with racism as a teacher, um, how, can you explain that? Like how would a teacher who is a teacher of color or whatever feel that they're not seen or heard? Because the stereotype is that if you're a teacher in the classroom, you're in charge of everything. You're like, you're like, you know, supreme being and you can, you know, reign supreme over the kids. And at least that's the viewpoint of people who are non-educators or not teachers. So what can you tell us about that from your personal experience? Sure. Um, so first off, racism is a very heavy word. And I think people hear it and they stray away from it. But it comes in many forms. And so most of the racism that I've experienced is very um, covert. It's not direct. There's no one marching around in, in KKK goods in school. It doesn't happen. Um, it's just more of a slow burn for me. Like I said, I just finished my 10th year. And then I've been reflecting the last two years, maybe, um, on my experiences and the experiences of students who look like me. And... Um, how valedictorians are always, they always look the same and how honors and AP classes always look the same and how the co-taught classes I teach always look the same and always has the same kids. And as you're listening to this, you're probably picturing gender and race and whatever you pictured, you're probably right. More students of color were in my co-taught classes. Um, even though there's few of them in our school, there's few students of color in our building. Um, than their white counterparts, but they are the most disciplined student in our building. And that's kind of something that I've been forced to reckon with as one of five black teachers in the staff of 100 plus um, is advocating for those kids because it's something the kids don't notice, but it's something that we're trained on. We've been getting bias training. We've been unpacking our um, way we discipline students. Um, especially with Senate Bill 100, which changed zero policies. And so we've had to be more restorative in how we do things. And there's been a lot of pushback from staff who believe that they should be able to kick a kid out if they have their hood up. Um, or if a kid has his head down, he should be able to be kicked out. Um, but the problem is most of those kids are black males and those same behaviors go undisciplined if it were any other race. So that's kind of been something I've been dealing with. Not overtly, no one's approached me and said, like, I hate students who look like you, but they're doing it with their actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's been a hard pill to swallow. And I think kids are starting to realize it too, because a lot more youth around the country are speaking up about their experiences, right? Um, they're asking for a more diversified curriculum. They're asking for a less school resource officer presence in school. They're asking for more teachers who look like them. And I think kids are starting to dig in to TikTok and Instagram and news to see why, 
Why are people my age asking for these things? And I think they're starting to notice the trends that we're getting trained on. And hopefully something happens faster than it does with us because we've been doing PD for most of my career and nothing's changed. <laughs> Surprise! So, yeah. Not really. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. one of the most stories that I always tell people when I think about racism um, deals with another black male, actually. So my second year teaching, um, I was feeling very confident, right? Like I just had a really first good year. I was teaching a new class, geometry, and I stand in the hall and greet students. And I, this is the first year I taught a black male um, and my own. I've had black males in co-taught. So he comes in and he looks really sad and he immediately puts his head down. And I'm like, what's up? What's, what's going on? He's like, there ain't no black people in here. And I'm like, you have me. And then he looks at me and laughs and says, yeah, okay. And then puts his head down. And so later on, I find him in a different class and I'm like, like, what's something I can do to make you feel more comfortable in class? And I'm like, you know, we're in this together. I know what it feels like. And he's like, how can you know what it feels like? You're not even, you're not black like me. So y'all can't see me, but I'm very black. <laughs> but <laughs> him, um, he had this schema or image of what blackness should be, most likely reinforced through media. Um, and I didn't, I didn't meet that definition of blackness um, with the way I spoke, with the way I carried myself, et cetera, et cetera. And so I realized that him, 16-year-old, has already been conditioned um, to view blackness in a certain way. And I know exactly what he meant because I was always told growing up, you're not really black. Because I was in honors and AP classes. And people, teachers included, would always say, you're very eloquent. Um, I'm very, yeah, you're, you're very eloquent. And friends would say, you know, you sound really eloquent for a Black person. Why can't more Black people sound eloquent like you? So they were equating speaking properly with whiteness. Um, and I used to wear those compliments. I wore, I wore them as compliments. It was a badge of honor. I used to be so proud. Uh, and now I realize how horrible that was to say to me and so yeah and I think kids are they and not just black kids I think any kid who is of color has to make a choice and they shouldn't have to and oftentimes that choice is do I abandon my shared culture and my customs to you know become this white person essentially um so I can thrive academically or do I you know live my truth. And what I'm starting to realize with this generation is a lot of them are demanding, uh, no, I'm going to still be who I am and I'm still going to demand academic excellence. So that's been a shift that I've, I've seen over the last couple of years. Um, and it's not purposeful. It's not, I don't think the schools are intentionally pushing people of color into lower track classes. Um, I don't think parents, you know, I don't think parents, it's not the parents' fault. It just happens that way. I don't think we understand how yet, but until we're comfortable and ready to talk about race, that's the only way we can fix it because it is happening. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'll 
fabulous points and what a great story um, to raise the awareness for teachers that don't understand what, and they don't even bother to ask. So I remember, you know, being a language teacher, I used to show stand and deliver in my Spanish yeah. classes. And I always, and one of the first things in that movie, as I was, a, you know, a young teenager and saw it, uh, it was like, he said, you know, they said to him, your students can't take calculus or can't take even any math. They're even lucky to be in school because they don't speak English. And he was like, they're not stupid. They just don't speak English, but they're brilliant. And there are a lot of ELL kids that get branded or have the stigma of being not smart, but they really need to be in a gifted class. They just have a language barrier for the time being. And I just recently, I'll have to sh I'll put this link also in the podcast and I'll send it to you. I've been tweeting it out and I even tagged Actual and said, I think you need to have this lady as a keynote speaker. Her name is, uh, Actual is our national language organization. And mm -hmm. um, her name is Dr. Catherine Kinsler. And she's in Illinois. She's at the University of Chicago. And she has done research. She has a book, I think it's called How You Say It. And her research shows how there's native speak and then what we perceive as people with accents or, you know, it may be the way, you know, African-Americans speak to one another, like you're saying. Um, and that's what they're referring to when they're like, you sound so eloquent. No, it's just, they have this preconceived notion of what it should sound like. And there's a lot of bias, a lot of prejudice, a lot of, um, and even what I was telling you before about, she said with teachers in kindergarten telling kids, boys and girls, boys and girls, line up boys and girls, kids immediately start seeing that there are only two choices and they have to identify with one or the other choice. And if they don't look like the kids that are in that line or feel like the kids that are in that line or identify with them, automatically we're starting a trauma for those mm -hmm. kids. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And um, her research is fascinating, just fascinating. And um, so I, I'll send you the podcast and I, I highly recommend you, you know, listen to it and maybe the book too. But, yeah, sure. but, yeah. but th those are the kinds of conversations we need to have and the research that we need to bring forth for teachers and for everybody really. But maybe that's a, maybe a book study for PD for teachers or have a PD um, Socratic seminar sort of thing. Like, well, let's all sit in a circle and talk about this and instead of let's watch a PowerPoint and have it read to us. Um, you can tell I really don't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like to be the, like the go-to in education and any presentation. And that's just, who wants to learn that way anyways? So, um, so I think that those kinds of PDs and conversations and what you're doing with your clubs, because a lot of times too in education, when you get to the district level or legislators, if you have the students raising their voices and the students speaking up and advocating for themselves, the, the legislators and the adults sometimes will listen to them, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And so you empowering them to do that and encouraging them and inspiring them to do that and giving them the pathway and the, the support to do that is, is wonderful. And thank you for that. So I know you're in a million clubs and it must feel overwhelming <laughs> sometimes, but you're, you're doing good. You're doing a lot of good thank in the you. world. Thank so, um, so I wanted to, I like to end these with a kind of just complete the thought and it's, I'm doing it just to prove that standardized testing is meaningless. I'm not going to give you multiple choice. I'm not going to give you true false. I'm not going to give you, you know, this discrete item because everybody has a different answer to this. So whatever you say is, and it doesn't have to be one word. It can be more than one word. It's not, it's not limited which standardized testing is very limited. And so what we're doing is preaching out of the box thinking and higher order thinking, and yet we're limiting it. <laughs> it's just, yeah. yeah, such irony. And I'm on that soapbox all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so complete this thought. Teaching is. I would say that teaching is a choice. Um, it's something that you choose every day. And I think people who are in education see it as it was a last resort. They weren't getting anything else. And so they decided to teach. Um, and it's just not that. We chose to enter this profession knowing we'd be underpaid, knowing we'd be legislated by people who'd never been in the classroom. Um, and we make that choice. And we make that choice every day. Uh, even though we might be going through it. Uh, a tree fell through my car and I had COVID and I still had to show up to Zoom the next day to teach. I made a choice. So I think that's something that I think people don't understand um, that I'd like people to understand better. Mm -hmm. Me too, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on that bandwagon. My students are... Oh, my students are my purpose and my reason. Um, like I said, this last year was hard and it wasn't because I didn't want to teach um, from home or I didn't want to wear a mask. It wasn't like that. It was because I didn't have as good as a connection with my students. Uh, that was the most heartbreaking thing for me all year. Any day I had a bad day was because I wasn't connected with my students because we mandated cameras off. Um, to protect their privacy. And it was just hard teaching to black screens all day. Oh. So, uh, and even with my some of my clubs, their cameras were off because that was the they, they were just to it. So um, I realized more and more this year, especially that they are my purpose. Without them, this job doesn't make any sense to me. Because I don't understand. <laughs> so I, I need those daily interactions and connections for sure. I think I've heard that from all the teachers. And um, I think maybe everyone will appreciate a little bit more, even the kid that's making faces in class, at least you can see them now. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or even if they have their head down, you can see them now. But that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's something to take into consideration. There's a reason why they have their head down on their desk. Mm -hmm. It's, and it's not always disrespect to you. There's a lot of other stuff that could be going on. And that relationship wow. and connection 
that's how you get it is when you yeah. see them put their head down and in a zoom meeting you can't you so, can't yeah I that know. was that was hard i don't know if they're suffering or if they're just silent because they're sleeping or i didn't know and that was the hard part because i'm used to intervening right away and i couldn't do that so yes absolutely the greatest joy i find in teaching is Ooh, the greatest joy I find in teaching is empowering students because I know that's the reason I'm teaching today. It's my high school teachers empowered me and actually my, my elementary and middle school teachers um, empowered me too. So that's kind of what I seek to do. Um, just now mastering how to do that in English. Like I said, I taught math for eight years and for them, you just need to give them successful moments in math. And that means giving that in-class time for feedback, for low stakes feedback, and finding a way to positively reinforce um, their effort, not just the correct answer, but the effort, because people are graduating still feeling that they're not prepared for math. And then they're going to tell all their friends, I'm bad at math. And then they tell their kids, I hate math, just get through it. And then we have this cycle of adults and kids alike who hate math. And so if you ever want to be, you know, a top three country in math, it starts in the classroom. It really does. Like it starts in the K through 12 classroom. So empowerment. Um, I think when I think of empowerment and I think of all the things happening with critical race theory. And I think the target is on history teachers, but I think every department should figure out how they can help kids feel seen. And I think English is one that is untapped a lot. And we have an obligation. Um, I mentioned earlier, people said I sounded white. And so if you're teaching English, um, something as simple as not correcting your kids when they say ain't or I'm finna, I'm finna do this. Um, they know, they know how to code switch. You don't have to tell them that, Hey, it's actually, I'm about to do this. Like they, they know, let them exist, let them exist when they're talking. Cause those little comments of, Oh, here's how you say it in front of all their peers. Now you're establishing in front of the whole class that the way this student is speaking is incorrect and less and improper when that student probably has an A in your class because they know how to write and they know how to comprehend. So Something as simple as that, I think, is something that we can do as English teachers. Um, and I know in English, we hold onto our classics, but you can still do the classics and help get full scene. I taught the Crucible through Zoom, and I paired it with New York Times articles from the Khalif Browder trial, who was the 17-year-old who was falsely accused of selling a backpack and spent almost two years at Rikers. Um, and then killed himself when he was released because the trauma was still too much and he was afraid of going back. Um, and then paired that with uh, the Netflix show about the Central Park Five. Um, and never did I ever say, this is about race. The kids were able to pick out the themes themselves. The kids were able to relate Proctor to Khalif Browder. Um, and actually, they never said anything about race. To them, it was nice to see someone the same age of that as them going through what the characters in The Crucible were going through. They were able to piece out justice and what false lies can ruin your life, how they can ruin your life. And so I know they're going to remember The Crucible more now because I helped them feel seen. 
So you don't have to get up there and worry about indoctrinating students. We never get into Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. It was just us talking about this theme of justice, which is a theme of the crucible. And I just found things that were present day that would help to engage them. So long-winded answer, but you have to find ways to empower your students because it'll stick with them longer if they do feel empowered and seen. Absolutely. Here, here. I agree a million percent. And I think maybe that's what Jessica meant by you're larger than life because <laughs> you're connecting those kids to life and empowering them. That is, that is, those are big shoes and you are walking quite a path and a journey, sir. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I appreciate you being on here and, um, and thank you again. Thank you. Hello again, everyone. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I'd like to invite you to nominate a teacher to be a guest on the podcast and to share their story. All you have to do is go to www.spiritofteaching.org and fill out the nomination form. Again, that's www.spiritofteaching.org. Also, please share, rate, and give some feedback to help us better serve you in the spirit of teaching. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to having you back next time on Teacher Tales.